Hello. This was the week that some of the towering figures of recent years came under pressure. Ivan Glazenberg, Angela Merkel and Henry Mance, the FT's media correspondent. I'm Tom Burgess and I'm standing in for Henry, who's taken a well-deserved break from a punishing schedule of champagne receptions at the Rugby World Cup. On this week's Best of the FT podcasts, we'll be talking about Glencore, Germany and Mars. It looks like there's brine on the red planet. Does that mean there could be tuna to go with it? But first... It's been a miserable time for Glencore that became a giant trading and mining house in 2013 when it bought Extrata. Tumbling commodity prices have got everybody worried about the level of Glencore's debt. Traders are quoting prices for that debt like it was junk. Ivan Glazenberg, Glencore's chief executive, embodied the bull years of the commodity boom. But it surely can't be long before he turns up at a food bank after the falling value of his Glencore stock meant that, for now at least, he's no longer a billionaire. Neil Hume, the FT's commodity editor, explained how Glencore fell to earth. The issue is that Glencore's have gone into this commodity downturn with too much debt, and that's really brought it crashing back to earth. And if we look where the debt comes from, I mean, we have to conclude that a large portion of it, 30 billion of net debt, came with half of it came with the acquisition of Xtrasa in 2013. So effectively, I guess what we're saying is that Glencore seems to have made the same mistake that every other miner has made at one point during its history. It made the wrong acquisition at the wrong price at the wrong time and failed to pay down its debt quickly enough. And the company is now being punished for all of those sins. And what of Glazenberg, the king of commodities? Ivan has his reputation as, you know, the savviest trader in the room, uh, you know, a very, very smart guy who can read markets better than probably anybody else. And yet he's made a number of, uh, I mean, it's difficult to say it's hubris, but he's made a number of sort of miscalculations three weeks before they announced the deleveraging plan. And Mr. Glasenberg and his finance director were telling the world that they could manage their debt and pay a dividend. They could walk and chew gum at the same time. Yet three weeks later, there's a huge deleveraging program. They've had to admit that they got that wrong. They couldn't do it. The market was too worried about their debt position. So I think it has proved that he's fallible and human. If it all goes wrong at Glencore, perhaps Glazenberg will find a warm welcome without leaving Switzerland. The boss of UBS, Sergio Emotti, has let it be known the mistakes are nothing to fret about. Emotti told UBS staff that a fear of taking risks was not in the interest of the bank, nor of the people who let the bankers play with their money. How very mature came the response. The FD's Lucy Calloway thought otherwise. It wasn't mature. It was mad. In a limited sort of way, what he said made sense. The main point about risks is that they're risky, and risky things have a way of going wrong. Places where people get a bollocking for making the slightest slip tend not to be where the best decisions get made. Yet the answer is not to tell bankers that it's fine to screw up. Mistakes are never okay, and they're particularly un-okay in banking. If I were a UBS client, I would be exceedingly displeased to learn that the bankers to whom I was handing over a king's ransom were being taught that errors were perfectly acceptable. It wasn't the bankers who came up with the notion that failure's great. It was the geeks. This mistake-loving nonsense is an export from Silicon Valley, where fail fast and fail often, is what passes for wisdom. Errors have been elevated to such a level that to get something wrong is spoken of as more admirable than getting it right. That approach might be okay when it comes to experimenting with an app that can make your face look hilariously fat, but it could have more serious consequences when it comes to accidentally unleashing killer bugs from Mars. 
This week, scientists at NASA revealed evidence of briny water flowing on the red planet. Science commentator Anjana Ahuja warned on the FT's comment pages that astronauts on future missions to Mars might risk returning to Earth with something nasty on the bottom of their space boots. I'm joined in the studio by Clive Cookson, the FT's science editor. Hello, Clive. Hi, Tom. First of all, what exactly do we know about Mars now that we didn't know a week ago? There's more evidence, firmer evidence, of wetness, of moisture on Mars than we had a week ago. What NASA scientists have discovered, they call it flowing water. I would say it's more like seeping brine. They found some streaks up to 100 metres long and maybe up to five metres wide, going down the slopes of several steep craters and mountains on Mars. And some scientific tests using the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter show that they contain salts, minerals, that could only have been formed in liquid water. They have not detected the water itself. They've just detected mineral evidence that proves that there must be water, seasonal water. As a result, should we, do you think, be terrified at the prospect of some sort of plague of Martian microbes arriving inadvertently on, on Earth? Or should we be thrilled at the prospect that we, we might not be alone out there? Oh, I'm certainly in the thrilled and excited camp, you look, you Tom. Look thrilled and excited, Clive. I think that this really does up the chances of microbes on Mars. Because although this brine is incredibly salty, we know that on Earth there are bugs called extremophiles or halophiles that will live in conditions as salty as those on Mars. And they in, hang out in the Atacama Desert, these things, don't that's they? That's right, right, yes, yeah. yes. Almost desiccated. These Martian bugs would be dry a lot of the time. Then occasionally they'd get wet and multiply. Now, as to whether they'd pose a risk to us on Earth if a cosmonaut, astronaut or unmanned spacecraft took some samples back, I very, very, very much doubt. And Jana's right, we do have to take precautions. But we also have to worry about the other way. Right. Maybe we will bring Earth bugs to Mars, they'll multiply there, and we'll think we've discovered life on Mars, but it'll actually be bugs brought from Earth. <laughs> Right, well, we look forward to trying to get to the bottom of that. When it happens, while you're here, Clive, you've also been writing this week about another extraordinary scientific advance, this one in neuroscience, an implant that can help the brain encode memories. Now, of course, that has all sorts of wonderful possibilities, for instance, for victims of Alzheimer's. But does it also potentially mean that we're entering an era where we could tinker with our own memories or where they could even possibly be hacked we're moving towards that, Tom, yes. What this experiment at the University of Southern California and Wake Forest University in the US shows is that using a computer algorithm, we can decode and recode the brain waves in a way that will enable them to bypass a damaged region of the brain. One of the researchers talked about it as being like translating from Spanish to French without knowing the content of either language. We can't really read 
the contents. We can't really, I can't really read your thoughts yet, but it's coming. I mean, it's amazing. You're sort of looking at me like you can, Clive. Oh, well, that's, (laughs) that's telepathy. It's not neuroscience. (laughs) Right, fair enough. But, but, I mean, we had a, we had an FT leader comment this week about cyborg brains being, being imminent. Is that, is that what we're heading towards? I think we are heading towards that. I don't think people realize how quickly this field of neurotechnology or bioelectronics, it's got various labels, how quickly it's advancing. I mean, I think that this field of biomedicine is actually moving faster than the purely biological fields that have been hyped, like gene therapy, like stem cells. Fascinating stuff. Thanks very much, Clive Cooks and the FT's science editor. Now, if we ever have to start testing for interplanetary microbes, let's hope that Volkswagen isn't in charge. The scandal over the use of so-called defeat devices to cheat on emissions tests keeps on deepening. Andy Sharman, the FT's motor industry correspondent, talked about how the consequences extend well beyond VW. This does reflect badly on sort of made in Germany as a brand. So you have Volkswagen, this sprawling 12 brand group that includes marks such as Audi and here in the UK, Bentley. But you've obviously got the other premium car manufacturers, BMW and Daimler, which is owner of the Mercedes-Benz mark. And this does have a knock-on effect in a way as it does to the rest of the industry because it means regulators are going to start clamping down on these car makers and how they are meeting or whether they are meeting these emissions targets. And this is by no means a purely corporate problem, as Stefan Wagstel, the FT's Berlin bureau chief, explained. Volkswagen as a company is so important that I would find it very hard to imagine how German authorities would let it go. It's also deeply enmeshed in the German political system with the state of Lower Saxony, where Volkswagen is headquartered and where it has its main plant, being a very large shareholder in the company and a big voice on the supervisory board. VW's troubles add to a lengthening list of problems facing Angela Merkel's government in Germany. At the top of that list is refugees. Stefan Wagstel again. She's had a rough series of meetings with her own party colleagues from the conservative CDU-CSU, But I'm told that while people have spoken their mind and criticized her, the majority is still behind her. This is not just an expression of faith in her. It's also an expression of faith in the German government administration, the vast resources of this country to cope with the flows. But that can't, Stefan believes, go on indefinitely. I think the refugee crisis is almost entirely dependent on how many people continue to come. And I think that Germany will manage it as well as it can and given its commitment and resources that's better than other larger European countries could in its position however even with Germany there will come sort of breaking point that's it for this week our producers were Fiona Simon and Feline Reyes Emma Jacobs will be here next Friday thanks very much for listening if you enjoyed listening to this podcast you might like to try our world weekly podcast which is presented by me Gideon Rachman the FT's chief foreign policy commentator Each week I discuss one of the main political stories of the week with the FT's overseas correspondents and experts and you can find our latest show at ft.com slash podcasts from Wednesdays. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. 
Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com.